All right, so as Luke said, my name's Kat, if we haven't met, and I'll be leading us through the reading today. And we're reading from Acts 16, starting from verse 6. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we set out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went down to Neapolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful to us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard over them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. 
He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Have you ever thought, maybe amongst your friends or co-workers, um, that Jesus is boxing above his weight. Have you ever met someone and, and you just thought, you know what, they're never going to believe this. There's just too many obstacles. Um, maybe office politics and the HR team and the pressure cooker demands of work. You know, I know that, I know that you really do want to talk to Jesus at work, to those around you. Um, but how do you do it by being a faithful witness and you still have a job by 5 p.m.? You know, when, when there's so many obstacles, it just seems like it, Jesus is boxing above his weight constantly with those you meet. So far from God, so left to field, um, surely, surely this message that I believe and, and trust is, is really just for me and, and I, I don't see anyone else ever really catching on with this belief in God stuff. If that's ever been you, and maybe it was you this week, then I think the next three weeks in Acts are going to be really, really helpful. Why do I say that? Well, because now, for the first time, the gospel of Jesus gets to Europe. Europe is the place where progressive agendas live. It's the intellectual capital of the world. Cities full of trade and prosperity and philosophy and red light districts abound. Surely, Europeans are too smart, too progressive, too clever to believe in a God that would live, die and rise from the dead for them. But you see, Acts is telling us week after week, as Amanda's reminded us and Meredith and Natasha and so and everyone that's been doing the kids has reminded us that nothing can stop the mission of the risen King Jesus, not even Europeans. Because you see, Acts clues us in to the story that God loves to tell so we know how to live faithfully in our day. And even in these seemingly hard, gospel-poor places, there is gospel fruit waiting to be plucked. And we see that in Acts chapter 16. We see the unique DNA of the church as Jesus saves all sorts of people, all types of people you'd never expect. By the grace of Jesus, they get saved. But you know, this wonderful story of Acts 16 we just read, if you, if you remember from the start of our reading, it doesn't begin with Paul heading off boldly to Europe. He doesn't say, I'm going to go there and I'm going to preach and three people will get saved and then I'll get beaten and leave. For Paul, going to Europe was actually the farthest thing from his mind, but not from God's. You see, Paul sets off with this team from Antioch on the green dot on the map. And I'll show you the map because I want you to see the roundabout way that Paul had to go to get where God wanted him. 
He said, I'm going to go to Asia. He sets off from Antioch and he tries to get in one day to Asia. And, and it says in verse 6, the Holy Spirit kept them. So he just kind of goes around the edge thinking, I'm sure this won't take long. I'll just try going left a bit more, east a bit more. And then it says in verse 7 that the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. And so Paul goes all the way around the top every day. I wonder if I'm going to get into Asia now to preach the gospel. Nope. What about today? Nope. Around he goes, over and over. You see, God is directing the course of these events. And sometimes the desire is good, like preaching the gospel in Asia, good desire, but it's not on God's agenda for Paul or for you. Why? Because gospel fruit is going to be found in another place. For Paul, it's a place far away. But all the energy, all the effort that Paul expended to get to Philippi is exactly how God wanted him to be. Because in the very last city at Troas, the very last possible place he could go southwest now to get into Asia, very last spot on the map, God shows up one night. And God divinely tells him to go to Macedonia. All Paul's effort, all the faithfulness led him to God's next step. And it was a very roundabout way. And I'm sure you can think of your own life. It's a very roundabout way sometimes. I just want to go here, but God's making me go all the way over here. Paul knows what it's like. Paul wanted Asia. God wanted Macedonia. And when we get to Macedonia, wow. I mean, just look at the gospel fruit waiting to be picked. We're going to see it in a moment. An upper-class businesswoman, a lower-class slave girl, and a middle-class blue-collar jailer. All of them sinners, all of them welcomed by Jesus, all of them making up the DNA of the church. God knows the direction he's got Paul on, and God knows the direction he has you on. So today, as you consider your life, as you consider the church and these three characters we're going to meet, be amazed at the kinds of people God is adding to his church. Be amazed at God's grace to you at saving you. And consider, what sort of church are we? Because the DNA of the Philippian church is the same DNA that's in our church too. So Paul gets there, takes the boat, as Amanda said, eventually gets to Philippi, which is the key city of the day. It began as a wealthy settlement um, because there's lots of gold mines around. There's about 10,000 people living in this city when Paul gets there. And it was nicknamed Little Italian Law. It was the only place outside of Rome where you didn't pay taxes and you could decide legal disputes without the capital. Moreover, it was the, um, the Victor Harbour, so to speak, where you wanted to retire to. Roman soldiers often went there to retire for land, for wealth, for a slower life. Moreover, lots of families who wanted to escape from um, Rome or Sydney came to Adelaide or Philippi because it was a slower-paced life, you see. That's the kind of place that Philippi was. Moreover, um, there's a very interesting thought that says this was Luke, the guy who's writing Acts. This is Luke's hometown. Philippi had a very uh, famous school of medicine, and Luke is a doctor. Moreover, we notice that there's a, a, a change in how the story's written. You notice it says, we, we did this, we went here. Now, that's Luke, who's the author of the book, and it's probable that he's now narrating the story as someone from this town with a connection to the place who meets Paul at Philippi, and now he's in part of this story, but because he lived there, that is why. It's, it's the most likely reason we have that change, because it stops um, a chapter later. 
Moreover, Philippi was religiously diverse, but there was only a very small, very small Jewish population. Because you see, to plant a synagogue, you needed 10 families, and Philippi didn't have 10 Jewish families to plant a synagogue. Which means when there's no synagogue, tradition says, go find a place of running, flowing water to meet with followers who worship Yahweh too. And in fact, that's what Paul does in verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. No synagogue, very small Jewish population. And Paul arrives ready for prayer. And who does he meet? He meets a a group, a bunch of women. And what does he do? Well, he's a guest preacher, and so he starts talking all about Jesus. The very first people to hear about Jesus in Europe were the women of Philippi. And one of these listening to Paul was a lady by the name of Lydia. And this is her story. She's mentioned by first name. She's very famous. She's very well-known. She's part of the fashion industry, and she sold purple cloth. The color came from small shellfish from her hometown, Thyatra, and you crack them open and you'd stain the clothing, and it was a very lustrous, color-fast purple, Roman purple. It was very expensive, and the Romans loved it to bits, and she became very wealthy from that trade. Today, she'd be as famous as anyone on Instagram, who's an icon in fashion. She'd be an entrepreneur at bringing purple all the way to Philippi. That's the sort of person she was, business-minded, smart, clever. But she believed in God. She was a God-fearer. She rejected polytheism. She rejected pantheism. She didn't believe in the gods of rain, sun, moon, harvest, or trade. She believed in the creator of heaven and earth. And with the sovereignty of God over her life, leading her, leading Paul, their stories meet in this new place by the river one Sabbath, and speaking about Jesus, the pieces fell into place, and in verse 14, God opened Lydia's heart and she believed. The first convert in Europe is a business-minded, fashion-orientated, God-fearing woman who was in on a discussion about Jesus. How wonderful. By God's grace, she realized that shellfish is good for business, but bad to build your life upon. And instantly, a love of Jesus translated into generosity. She extended hospitality to Paul and his friends to her home. Her home would have been bigger than any home that you've been into. It would have been very large, had a courtyard, huge. And isn't that wonderful? The church begins in Philippi with this one woman and her household. And then, and then Acts 16, verses 16 to 19, tells us the next convert. And just so you know that we're not just talking about business-minded, upper-class people here in Europe, Jesus is for everyone, in all cities, in all places. And this girl that we're going to meet couldn't be any more different from Lydia in everywhere possible. Class, age, status, wealth, education, life. But she makes up the DNA of the church too. So Paul's here for a few weeks, traveling to the place of prayer every Sabbath, and a demon-possessed slave girl tags along one day and begins to cause a commotion. Her job, if you could call it that, was to tell people their fortunes. And it turns out she was actually doing this because she was possessed by a demon, and she was a slave of someone who was making lots and lots of money off taking advantage of her. 
This was an evil and accurate sort of life influenced by demons. This is not a life that leads to joy. It leads to gold, but at the expense of ruining this girl's life. It's the exact opposite of the gospel. Jesus gives life. He doesn't take advantage of people. And in verse 18, it says, For many days this kept happening, harassing Paul, shouting, not not just quietly, but shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Isn't that such an interesting thing? I mean, what she says is true, is it not? I mean, haven't we seen that with Lydia? But you see, it's said from someone who's under the grip of Satan and evil. And demons can say true things. It does not make them holy or good or forgiving. Moreover, in the Gospels, we see Jesus over and over again, never wanting such a demon to say such a thing. He always said, be quiet. And eventually, Paul would get so worn down, he says, I want you out of here too. But why, why, would you, why does he not want that to happen? I mean, it's true. Well, it's simple. Don't, lest you be amazed at the demon and not Jesus. Accepting the testimony of something true from someone so evil and false is not God's way of proclaiming the gospel to the world. And to show that Jesus is better, Paul turns to this girl and says to the spirit in her, get out, and it leaves. And forever now, she is different. Jesus is Christus Victor, the one to liberate from slavery of evil and the sickness of sin. And what a contrast to Lydia in every single way, saved, not by an intellectual conversation, I rebuke and a command, but both now one in Jesus. But however, Paul mustn't have anticipated this because the same time the Spirit leaves her, so does her owner's hopes of getting rich. So they seize Paul in silence, violently drag him to the marketplace because they're upset that Paul has now ruined their evil empire. You know, sometimes people don't see Christianity as a win. They miss the changed life. They just see inconvenience. Because God operates with a different agenda, and that can be confronting to see. I'm always amazed that in the life of Jesus, he once healed a man's hand totally fixed it. I mean, well, it, was, it was not as it should be, and Jesus says, let me, let me fix you up. And, and the people watching said, Jesus, you're evil. Why would you call Jesus evil for fixing a man's hand? Because he did it on the wrong day of the week. Therefore, he's not from God, he's evil. And they missed the whole miracle right there. Don't miss what God is doing because it does not fit your agenda. And even when... You follow God's agenda and life goes pear-shaped, as Paul is about to find out. Remember, you're living on a different agenda as well. Look at what happens. Paul and Silas are beaten, stripped naked, put in stocks, thrown in prison, physically beaten, and their reputation takes a hit too. The, the team of people that looked after this girl, that were, looked after, they were the slave owners of the girl, um, are saying that Paul is trying to overthrow civil government to start riots. Gospel workers are evil, they say. They don't respect the government. They want to overthrow Caesar. Now, if I heard that in the mission update from Paul that he's sending on his last email before he gets off to jail, um, I think today I would say, well, you had a good innings. Let's pray and gather the bail money to get you back home. I mean, two converts, you've been beaten up, falsely accused. 
I reckon that's a pretty good stab in the dark for, for, uh, for Europe. Let's try again. Maybe let's go to Asia and try again tomorrow. What do you reckon? We'd say, good job. But you see, God's executive oversight and his agenda for his people includes a prison cell, sometimes. Because the next strand of the, church, the DNA of this church is right here. In verse 25, it was midnight, and Paul and Silas were doing something none of the prisoners or the jail guard had ever seen or heard. Praying and singing hymns to God, and they were listening. Now, what a frustrating prisoner. I mean, different priorities. You put him in jail and he sings. You say, we'll kill you. Good, I get to be with Jesus. We'll make your life hard. Well, as long as it makes me look like Jesus, that's okay too. We'll let you live. Great, I get to talk about Jesus. I mean, you couldn't win with Paul, could you? But this attitude as a witness of Jesus, other people listening in, paying attention to a life that's intriguing and compelling and attractive, filled with joy and songs, even at a place where everyone else says you should not have any reason to be happy. The visible, audible expression of hope in God from the middle of that spot. And then, when everyone's just sitting and thinking about the God they're singing of, God rocks, quite literally rocks the whole place and brings the next convert right into Paul's lap. Look at verse 26. Suddenly, a violent earthquake, the foundations of the prison were shaken, the doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He thought the prisoners had escaped. Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. An earthquake happened, the doors open up. The jailer now, the, 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 the blue-collar prison guard knew the consequences. If the prisoners escaped, the job description says, I die. Far better to end his life right there and then than face an agonizing Roman death. Don't miss this. He is not in a good place. He is at the end of himself. He has no hope, nowhere to go at one of the most intense moments of his entire life. Just before he was asleep, he just heard Paul Silas singing and now he wants to kill himself. The only option he can see is death as a way forward. But into this, Paul's voice is heard. He says two things. Stop, don't hurt yourself. Paul values that man's life. And then he says, we're all here. He assures the man it's not as bad as he thinks. So this man runs to Paul, overcome, and he just says in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This guy is not the intellect like Lydia. He's not super spiritual like the slave girl. He's a typical worker, eight to five, whatever the prison guard hours were. He wants to do well. He wants to go home to his kids. He wants to hug his wife. He wants to have a beer at the pub on Friday at wherever the pub was in Philippi. But the spirit works just like the others. How? God brings this man to the end of himself. He's overwhelmed with grief and fear. And God does that with the two people right near him who know the God who is, the both, who is both the great burden giver and the great burden lifter, who is a powerful God, 
who lets you face hard things with songs and a cheerful spirit. Can you see the contrast between Paul and the jailer? I want to be saved like that. And what does Paul say? Believe in the Lord Jesus, verse 31, and you will be saved, you and your household. Jesus is for everyone. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, this is verse 33, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately him and his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, like Lydia. And he was filled with joy because he came to believe in God, he and his household. What does Paul say? No sacrifices, no penance, no temples, no do better, try harder, no beat the prisoners less, no be kind, no do your own truth, no try really hard to make up for all the wrong you've done. Believe Jesus the one to lift your burdens. Believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Believe that Jesus' death is sufficient to rescue and save you, not your death. And believe that Jesus changes your heart and mind and gives you hope. And he just said it simply to the working-class blue-collar man. And every person in Acts so far hears Jesus where they're at with the exact part of the gospel they need. This is the blue-collar Jesus moment. There's a saying by a German theologian called Gerhard Fords. You may have heard this before. And, and he's a theologian, but he says it in the everyday language of Germans. This is what he says. He says, to the age of question, he says, what shall I do to be saved? He says, the confessional answer is shocking. Nothing. Just be still, shut up and listen for once in your life to what God the Almighty, Creator and Redeemer is saying to His world and you in the death and resurrection of His Son. Listen and believe. Good news. Listen and believe. And believe the jailer does because he goes from beating Paul to caring for him. He invites Paul into his home and gives him a meal. He band-aids his wounds. He's filled with joy and community because of God. But there's more to the story because God's plan for Paul isn't long-term ministry here. It's a quick visit. But this church, out of every other church we know that Paul started, is, became the most dear gathering to him. They supported him for the rest of his life even when others didn't. And in a few months, we'll, we'll preach through the book of Philippians and see just what that was. But the early morning meal joy, uh, gives way to daylight, and the rulers have found something pretty shocking about Paul through the, a night of paperwork. They realize he's Roman. They've treated him shamefully. And given the accusations of the slave girl's owner, Paul, at this point, wants to make it clear that church planters and Jesus followers are people of integrity. And that's why he makes a point here. We're not rebellions. We're servants of God, and that counts. We don't want to overthrow Caesar, just sin and Satan. And eventually, Paul says, you know, you tell us to go. He wants to put the record right, and they do, and they're a little worse for wear, but there's work to do. Onwards to the next job site. Onwards to see what Jesus is going to do in the next town. And we'll get there next week. But, as we leave Philippi today... Jesus has forever changed three lives and three families through Paul's preaching. And that's the DNA of the church in Philippi. And did you know that that's the same DNA of our church too? 
I mean, just consider, look around at this room right now, all different jobs, all different education, all different backgrounds, all different stage of life, all different incomes, all different experiences, the same DNA as this church. By God's grace, you're a trophy of His grace. Which means, by the nature of that, the church should be a place of unlikely friendships. A community where you get to know and love people who are most unlike you, apart from, apart from your common bond in Jesus. And you're part of that. And we're part of that. And maybe if you're not part of that community that, that has Jesus at the center, that the Lord would open your heart today too, like he did Lydia, as you hear about Jesus logically and sensibly, or he'll do it like the slave girl, that you would know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, or he'll do it like he did to the jailer at your lowest, you will finally see Jesus as your hope. Because Jesus never boxes above his weight. His mission will never fail. And so this morning, reflect here on how we're going as a church of welcoming and including people, like Lydia and the jailer and the slave girl and their families. People not from our background, not that we naturally associate with, but because of Jesus, we should be okay with them because he's okay with us. And that's the church. So by God's grace... When you see someone new, make a beeline for them. When you see someone old you haven't met, say hello to them. Because we get to be a church like that. We get to say, and maybe you can do this over coffee today, say to someone, what's your story? What's God been up to? Get to know someone with a different strand of DNA than you'd normally associate with. We get to be a welcoming church by God's kindness. Would you join me in that? I hope that you will. Let's be amazed at God's grace to us all here.